0: Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable, automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puttick, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes, and by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now, here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Welcome back and to
1: another episode of Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, unexpected lessons in leadership from America's worst high school hockey team, and as you know, I'm not making that up. My guest today is an old friend of mine. He might not admit it, but I will. Uh, Pat Hughes, he's got a heck of a story and really two great stories. Uh, One, he was an NHL player for 563 games. I'm sorry, 573 games. Let's get that right. Um, And then went on to a distinguished career in the Ann Arbor Police Force, uh, 20 years, uh, finishing as detective sergeant, the supervisor of the detectives. So, Pat, thanks for uh, joining us today.
2: Uh, thanks for having me, John.
1: You got it. And by the way, for a guy from uh, Etobicoke, Ontario, you've got a pretty good tan right now living in Florida, correct?
2: A little golf? Uh, a little golf and uh, fortunate to spend part of the winter down here and escape the cold. So
1: There you go. Your, your blood has gotten thin, Pat, since your childhood days of pond hockey. But anyway, uh, you're born in 1955 in Calgary. You're raised in Etobicoke, Ontario. That is right outside Toronto, of course, big time hockey country. And preceding you, of course, was Ken Dryden, probably the most famous native of Etobicoke?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, etobicokes you know, I think it's part of the greater Toronto area now. It's a, a suburb of Toronto, close to the west end of town near the airport, and probably uh, 600,000 population way back in the day. So it's a, a big uh, city and all part of the big Toronto area, which is obviously a huge hotbed for hockey and minor hockey and junior hockey and all the uh, avenues and professional hockey, obviously, with the Maple Leafs and um, the big uh, stepping stone, if you will, to the uh, college and pro levels. There's been a ton to come out of there and um, certainly Ken Dryden is one of the greats ever to play the game and uh, uh, Etobicoke natives. So So there's
1: no question you growing up in Etobicoke, you're going to play hockey, correct? um well
2: I, as I don't a know. kid at least certainly you know you hope i guess that uh you uh as a kid you're going to play hockey that's sure a, that's
1: what i mean i mean nhl is a pipe dream for anybody
2: right but, absolutely. Uh, absolutely you know every kid in uh growing up in canada i think for the most part plays hockey at some point they slap those skates on you early and you're going to be a player now some kids fall by the wayside a little bit sooner than others and some go on to you know bigger and better things but yeah absolutely my dad I think I saw a picture of me uh in Calgary I think on somebody's backyard uh, uh pond and I don't even remember having skates at that point but so it started back then and moved to Toronto and carried out from there
1: so how old were you when your dad first got you on skates
2: I'm gonna guess two three years old I mean <laughs> I guess as soon as you're, you still, you're skate, still in
1: diapers then, basically.
2: Yeah, just about, <laughs> just about.
1: Classic, um, and of course, what did your what did your parents do? By the way,
2: uh, my dad worked in the uh, trucking industry in Canada, um, in sales for a large company up in uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. And my mom was uh, she was a homemaker and went back to school later in life and uh, worked at a pharmacy as a pharmacist assistant.
1: Very cool, hardworking folks, obviously. What yeah. lessons did you take away from your dad and your mom?
2: Uh, well, I, I think uh, more than anything, uh, work ethic. Um, you know, they demonstrated day in and day out with, with everything they did. And, uh, you know, my dad did, you know, and mom both took me to, I can't count how many uh, hockey games over the years. But, uh, you know, I don't think they expected uh, much more than, uh, you know, a good effort out there. And if I wasn't uh, perhaps uh, putting forth the effort that they expected on a a game-by-game basis, uh, I got a little bit of an earful about that. But, uh, um, you know, nothing. I'd say they expected you to, you know, come and give an honest effort and whatever you did.
1: Uh, I like that a lot, of course. In the book, I stress that you have to be very impatient with behaviors. Uh, effort mainly, of course, hard work and supporting your teammates. Results come and go. It sounds like your parents, long before I wrote any books, of course, were on the philosophy that they're focusing on your behaviors and they were not putting pressure on you to make certain teams, to be a travel team player, to be a leading scorer. That was not the pressure, it sounds like.
2: No, it never was. I mean, It it was always, and it was never pressure either. It was just if you're going to go do something, then try and do it as well as you can and work hard at it. Um, the results will follow from there. And um, I think that that was, uh, you know, the, the constant message just uh, go out there and, and work hard, and good things will happen if you do that.
1: So. Pretty simple, but hard to do, of course. So vital to all future success. You decided to not take the trail of the high juniors, which they will pay you, of course, minor leagues and so on. You enrolled instead at the University of Michigan. Uh, That was a pretty unconventional move at the time, although it's becoming more popular. Certainly now it's very popular. Uh, But you're one of the pioneers in that regard. Your first class at Michigan certainly was. Um, You, Rob Palmer, Chris Maneri, others. How did you make that decision, and how do you feel about it now?
2: Uh, Well, one of the things that I think my dad always said was, um, you know, you've got to have, I don't think you put it quite this way, but always plan B, if you will, and if this hockey thing, doesn't perhaps pan out, then you better have something else to fall back on, and and he was a big proponent of uh, getting an education, and um, so you know I I had I was drafted by the Hamilton Red Wings in uh, um, junior hockey. Um,
1: That's Hamilton, Ontario,
2: in Ontario, in the Ontario Hockey League, and uh, you know they were run by uh, a guy by the name of. Uh, Nick Durbano, who ran the Hamilton uh, Red Wings for years, very successful, but if they tended to have a little bit more aggressive uh, outlook on things, and we're kind of known for—I well, don't want to say dirty play, but chippy play. It was—it wasn't, uh, you know, the, maybe not the best uh, organization that fit my type of play, I, I guess. And anyway, it was—I uh, think more than anything, it was back to my dad saying it was time to um, make sure you had something to fall back on. So that's how we made the jump. And, you know, and I don't say we're pioneers by any stretch because all the classes before me, um, they're, you know, a big uh, group of those players were eligible to play junior hockey as well, either in Western Canada or uh, Eastern Canada, and they chose to go to the college route as well. So...
1: Nonetheless, a lot of your peers would have taken the money, of course, at least early on. And the only thing better than an education is a free education, which you received, of course, at the University of Michigan. And you're playing for a guy named Dan Farrell, uh, first-time head coach. Uh, The finally opened Yost Arena in Ann Arbor. That was a big deal there, turning that into an arena instead of a former field house. Um, Different style of hockey. He was a peer of Badger Bob Johnson at Wisconsin, a peer of Herb Brooks, the legendary coach who, of course, was the architect behind the Miracle on Ice. Uh, you're playing in some ways pretty sophisticated hockey, even for college.
2: Yeah. You know, Dan, uh, um, came from, uh, Michigan tech where he, he coached under assistant coach under John McGinnis up there. And, uh, who's legendary and potent, obviously. And, um, when he got the opportunity to coach at Michigan, um, I hadn't been recruited to Michigan at all at this point. And, uh, get the call from Dan he'd recruited me to Michigan Tech but so I get the call and he gives me a tour of uh Yost Fieldhouse and says when you come back if you choose to come to Michigan this will be a hockey rink in September and uh because they were still running uh, track in there and doing all the things that they did in Yost before it became a hockey rink and uh so uh you know made the jump joined Dan and uh um, Dan came in with, uh, and you're right, Badger Bob and uh, Herb Brooks, and he was in that era of uh, coaching, which was, uh, uh, I'd say, pretty. Um, you know, they were changing the pace of college play, and obviously, Badger Bob um, was a great coach, and and uh, those Wisconsin Badgers had such great teams with their offensive style, and. and Herb Brooks of Minnesota um, prior to his Olympic uh, experience and success was, uh, you know, they had tough grind them out type teams in Minnesota with a lot of talent. So Dan was, you know, not to say Dan didn't have quite the success as uh, those guys did right out of the gates. Um, but he came in and took over a program that had been faltering for a couple of years. And it took him, you know, two or three years to get things Turned around and the players that he needed in his lineup. And, you know, I think by uh, which would have been my senior year, the program had got to the point where they were able to compete at the highest levels and obviously went to the NCAA finals and lost out to Wisconsin
1: there. That's right. In overtime in 77. Uh, but you and your peers, like I said, Chris Maneri, Rob Palmer, must have been seven or eight guys at least that made the jump from college to the NHL, which uh, used to be a crazy idea when Red Berenson did it in 1962. Uh, you guys made that that class especially far more common. In fact, that generation in the 70s, including the Wisconsin Badgers, the Minnesota Gophers, um, it was starting to happen in that sense. Sorry, Pat, you guys were pioneers in that regard. Um, but your, of course, bid came from the Montreal Canadiens. As a kid from Etobicoke, uh, to get picked up by the Canadiens must have been a dream come true. And then in 1978-79, you are now playing in the Montreal Forum, the Yankee Stadium of Hockey, for the Montreal Canadiens, and they're on this incredible roll, of course, with this amazing team. Uh, did you have to pinch yourself? Did you have to keep your head on straight? How did you adjust to that gigantic quantum leap, really?
2: Well, it, 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 you make it sound like it happened uh, overnight. Uh, you know, I was drafted by the Canadians, I think, after my uh, sophomore year. spent another year in uh, my junior year, and then turned pro after my junior year. I uh, went to training camp in Montreal in that time. They had won the um, the first of their uh, little run. They went on four in a row. So I went to um, went to training camp. They, you know, they're not going to change anything. They've got a great great squad there. We go uh, split up into I think four teams of uh, fifteen guys on a team and uh, play round robin for a day and a half. And then they give me my little airline ticket to halifax nova scotia and said see you later Um, (laughs) so this means
1: i'm not in montreal this year (laughs) right
2: no i wasn't in montreal that year um i got to uh they had a group that they called back from the nova scotia voyagers um to kind of supplement their their playoff uh roster and i guess there'd have to be uh i don't know a lot of a sickness or something to run through the team before any of those guys were going to get the lineup. But um, they put us on call, even though we weren't anywhere near there. And uh, we were in Florida actually enjoying the, after our season ended, and enjoying Florida. But we had to call in every um, every day to make sure that they didn't need us, which was great. And they, they gave us a little stipend for doing that, which mostly covered our beer costs, I think, in Florida. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so uh, the following year, the, uh, my second year in Halifax, I got an opportunity to play and um, played all the exhibition schedule with them. Got called up during the season for a few games uh, when they had injuries, and then I was one of the ones at the end of the year that uh, came up and played. Uh, in, well, it was a standby in the playoffs, so got an opportunity to um, spend some time in Montreal in the Forum and work, you know, work out with those guys, which. It was a great thrill, and you know, there's such a long history in uh, Montreal, and you, you uh, nailed it. It's the mecca of hockey. Uh, skating in that forum, um, just getting on the forum ice and looking up at uh, at that time, I think 20, uh, 20 banners. Uh, the history there is unbelievable. And, you know, it was just a huge thrill, and like you say, you pinch yourself every day, especially when you're. You know, the same dressing room with with the likes of uh, Guy Lafleur and Sir Shavard, Kendra, you know, Larry Robinson, Steve Shuddy. You know, I don't know how many of those guys, probably a dozen of them are in the Hall of Fame anyway. There's, uh, you know, some great players there. So that was it. That was exciting. It was um, intimidating. But, um, you know, you got a great, great education through, you know, the, the whole organization.
1: And of course, he pronounces that the Canadian way still, despite your many years in the United States. The organization, well done, Pat. Two things about that. One is um, the intimidation factor. And Ken Dryden gave me a great quote for our, my latest book on the greatest comeback about the Summit Series, and on which you were a great help. Um, and he said he's in Halifax, same place you were, uh, as about seven or eight years earlier. He's there in training camp, and he said, "Okay." I I can't think about the fact that Bobby Hall is a future Hall of Famer, and I'm playing with Hall of Famers right now, at least for today. The net is 4 by 6 The puck is still the same dimensions, and I have to focus on that. My job has not ultimately changed. So that's how he got his head straight to handle the next step of advancement. How did you handle it? How did you keep from freaking out?
2: Well, Kim Dryden's is way smarter than me. He's very smarter than both of us, but that's not important now. yeah <laughs> he, he had his brain uh, wired correctly. I don't know every day was uh it was uh um a little bit of an adrenaline rush, and you know it's like anything when you're growing up playing hockey with any team you play on or against any of the guys you're playing with. you want to be uh you know competitive and, and try your best and even though once you step on the ice, everybody's the same even though. 90% of them were going way faster and hammered the puck way better and uh, doing all the things that they do. But, it, you know, it's um, the the great thing about that organization, and I'm sure we'll talk about the Oilers as well. You know, they're so inclusive. They bring you in and you're part of the whole organization right from the get-go. They want to try and get you um, – they want to teach you and train you what the – the philosoph- their philosophy is and the success that they've had and try and you know breed that into you as well, so they're all more than uh, helpful friendly um, you know it, it's a it's a great group that was always trying to everybody push everybody ahead, and that includes the the lowest guy and the and the rookies on the team for sure
1: well you're too humble about that, you're a great skater that's why you're playing for the Canadians, of course. Um, but, uh, your quote there, you and I talked about this before, that even after your first practice, they take you in immediately. You go across the street, you get a croque monsieur, which is a ham and cheese sandwich, basically French style. Um, tell us about how they, how they bring you in immediately.
2: Well, you know, um, told you the first, uh, training camp, they break you into four teams of 15 and you play and they, they play at a pretty high level, but, you're you're wearing the the Habs practice jersey anyway, so you're part of the organization. But then once once you get through that and you get get on the team, and for in my case a couple of years later, um, they'd all team meetings and it wasn't much, you know. We I I don't even remember the name of the brasserie across the street, but uh, we we'd all go there and Serge uh, Sabard as the captain or Evan Cornway at that time would say, okay. See across the street, and everybody would go. We'd have the crock monsieur, like you you mentioned, and and we had to stay for one beer anyway. And if some people choose to stay for more, that's fine. But uh, and you know, it's just an opportunity to get everybody together and and uh, spend some time. Because once we left there, people would go home to their families and their wives, and the single guys would uh, you know do whatever they did to kill time. And um, but they're you know they're just That's part of the whole orientation of the organization by bringing everybody in like that.
1: Well, you told me that in a casual conversation once, and we'll get to the Oilers here, of course, too. Very different culture in some ways, but in some ways very similar. But I love what you said, that great teams do that. Great teams take all their guys in. Um, They make you feel like you're part of the team on day one, even though, like you said, you're talking to Yvonne Conway and Serge Savard, who are no-brainer first ballot Hall of Famers. Um, and I love that. I love that. They take you in right away, and that's what great teams do, and that's a very simple lesson. Um, they didn't have to, and you, you played on six NHL teams, and you saw the differences. Uh, the Oilers and the Canadians function one way, and others often function another. A uh, great quote from Ken Dryden about you. And what's instructive about this, this is an interview from, I think, three, four years ago, when I met him in Toronto to talk about uh, the greatest comeback, about the 1972 Summit Series. And if you don't have that one out there, kids, go get it today. But uh, this was, what, 40-some years after you played with Ken for his last season, your first season in the NHL. And he played with a number of guys in his nine-year career, of course. Um, and he pulled you up, no, no question, in a heartbeat. So did Serge Savard, uh, the later captain, of course, after Ivan Cornway. They had no problem remembering you. And that in itself tells you something about, A, your role, but also how, they, how that team functioned. And Ken, without missing a beat, said, Pat hughes was a fourth line player who knew he's a fourth line player and knew that being a fourth line player on that team is very important we need you to get the puck in the zone play your man kill some penalties and that is one reason why we win championships we win cups and that was off the top of his head he could break down your game like that and that tells you a lot about when and when you're with a really great team it's a somewhat flat organization there's not a not a lot of clicks not a lot of these guys are the hot shots and screw you guys the rookies uh, you don't get a lot of that in the great teams. Anything to add about that besides what Ken well, added?
2: Well, we always, you know, and it's uh, kind of an old uh, adage, I guess. That it's, you know, there's no I in team, and it, you know, there's no individuals that are going to carry the team. It takes twenty players, every game in and game out. And, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, Gila Flur leaving the charge with the Canadians or and, and winning games single-handedly, or it was the the 22nd guy in the roster, Cam Connor, beating the Toronto Maple Leafs in, in uh Toronto in, over, in a double overtime game to uh, I think it was to eliminate the Leafs. Uh, you know, Cam hardly played at all, and uh, I think the whole lineup was pretty tired. And he went out and scored the goal. So you know, it it takes uh, 20 guys to to contribute. Uh, nobody at that level, especially on the elite teams ever, um, you know, thinks they're better than anybody else, it's 20 guys getting the job done. So that was certainly the philosophy for the Habs.
1: The captain at the time was Yvonne Cornway. He was my favorite player, as I think you know. And I've got to know him as an adult, which, by the way, in my business, you never do that. Don't meet your heroes. It's a bad idea. Uh, but Yvonne, Serge, these guys have just been fantastic. What was Yvonne Cornway like as a captain? And what was the legendary Scotty Bowman, your coach in Montreal, what was he like as a head coach?
2: You know, Ivan um, Cornway was just uh, – if he's not one of the greatest skaters ever to play, um, he he's right up there. He uh, – was just a happy guy, you know, loved to come to the rink, could skate all day long. Most of that year, though, I think he had back issues. And he it did. Kind of down his career at that point. I think he ended up watching, uh, watching a lot of games because of his uh, back injury. But, um, you know, just a first-class guy, one of the, the great leaders of the Canadians over the years and a guy that you would want to – you know, when when you're sitting next to him on the bench and he gives you a little pat and say, let's get going, um, you know, you're, you're paying attention to him as one of your peers. So um, just a great leader there. Scotty uh, Bowman, you know, one of the greatest coaches in history. You know, everybody has their own style of uh, leadership, John. You know better than anything, uh, anybody talking about that. Um, the ability to influence people to get Things that you want done is, is uh, really what it uh, boils down to. Scotty had a different uh, different approach. I'd say he's more of an authoritarian. That was, you know, do it his way, or uh, or you might want to watch a lot of games if you weren't <laughs> doing it. so uh, very, very successful at that. He kept everybody uh, on edge, and uh, you know, with it. A, Uh, which kind of brought the best out of them, uh, forced everybody to elevate their game because you knew that uh, if you weren't going to play well and play up to your potential, Scotty was – you were going to hear about it from Scotty. So um, very different uh, style than some of the coaches that I had, but very effective and obviously uh, one of the winningest, if not the winningest uh, in NHL history. So.
1: That speaks for itself. On the Yvonne front, Ivan Conway, he's no taller than I am. Uh, fast as the wind, of course, which I was not. But uh, the, the Glennon's eye, always a sense of humor, always a quick quip, of course, fun to be around. But I think in the process, and I learned this while researching the greatest comeback, his competitive spirit has been grossly underestimated. Uh, he was not there to have fun. He's there to win. And he said to one of his uh, NHL friends who said, you know, I was always afraid of getting hurt. And he said, well, I was always afraid of losing. And that's why I won so many, that he hated losing. The great ones, by the way, the good ones like winning. The great ones hate losing, and one is too many. And Ivan has often told me that he can't remember all of his 10 cups, which is not a small little list, of course, one of the longest of all time. Next, I think, only to Henri Richard. Uh, But he said, I'll never forget losing it in 67 to the the Toronto Maple Leafs. That loss to this day, I just talked to him two weeks ago, stings him more than all the wins. So it tells you something about his competitive spirit. And on the Scotty Bowman side, um, he's not warm and fuzzy. I dealt with him a fair amount at the Detroit News when he was with the Red Wings. And nobody I've ever talked to who played for him, from you to Iserman and so on, ever called him warm and fuzzy. But you hit the nail on the head. He had the unique ability to keep everybody, from Iserman to a backup goalie at the time, Chris Osgood, on edge to get the best out of them, and he got it. And he's not a guy you want to disappoint, but one of his great aspects, I think, is a player like you, uh, Chris Draper, Maltby, of course, uh, Darren McCarty for the Red Wings, the grind line. He had great faith and great belief in third and fourth line guys, not just the stars. And he coached the team that way, I believe. You, you know more than I do about that, but uh, that, to me, was a key.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was uh, uh, Scotty Bowman was a uh, and still is, I'm sure, is, is a great statistician. He would look at the stats on a, on a regular basis before they had all the analytics that they they have now, and he just kind of that clicked in his mind, and he coached as a result, um, you know, using a lot of that data, if you will, in the way he approached things, but. Um, he knew that it was 20 guys to, to be successful. Now, some days uh, that they might just roll three lines because that's who was being successful. But when uh, push came to shove, that fourth line, would uh, he'd put them into the game at, at times when everybody needed that little extra energy boost or what have you or, or a little bit more aggressiveness, whatever it may be. And he, he knew when that time was, and he was, he was real smart. But he knew that uh, it, it's not just 10 guys that are going to win it for you. It's going to be all 20, and that's how he utilized the, the team.
1: You had another big point there. I've All the leaders have been around, the great ones I've studied. Uh, finger on the pulse. Know when they need the fourth line out there. Know you when you need a shot in the arm. These guys know that. They smell it. Um, and they respond to it. They trust their instincts. That's another key there. Of course. Um, you won a cup there in 79 with the Montreal Canadians. Hey, one year, one cup, not so bad, Pat. Uh, your dad, by the way, must've been thrilled. He came to the games, I believe in Montreal, much as he could. Um, yeah. so well, he must would, been proud,
2: you know, he was, he was still working hard at, uh, doing his, uh, his uh, vocation and, and, uh, he was pretty busy, um, but when he got the opportunity, he would uh, uh, come to Montreal or wherever. You know, certainly when we we're in Toronto, he, they were at the, all the games or Buffalo and um, the games that were close. And um, he was a big, uh, big supporter for my both my mama and dad.
1: That must have felt pretty cool, I'm sure. You get your cup, you get your ring. They trade you, of course. Welcome to the NHL. Uh, how do you adapt to being traded? You find out by phone, I assume. Um, It's a quick process. No one's too concerned about your feelings, I don't think. Um, It's a pretty brutal business, to say the least. How did that hit you, and how do you respond?
2: Uh, Yeah, we didn't have cell phones back in those days, and I I came back to Ann Arbor to train with uh, a lot of my former teammates at at school, and we worked out together all summer. And 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 coached me at
1: hockey camp. That's not important now.
2: Thank you. And coached you, uh, (laughs) even though you were. You we were at that time a little incorrigible, but uh, well, there's uh, that. Now we worked through it, uh, but no, you didn't have phones, so I think I um, got a message um, from uh, some friends where I had a contact number and said, "You need to call the Montreal Canadiens." And so I called them, and they said, "Well, guess what? Uh, you're gone. We're trading you to uh, Pittsburgh and." Uh, um here's the name of the general manager and his phone number for pittsburgh and um, call him and good luck to you so hey it's pretty uh it's pretty quick uh, you know you say okay well a lot of thoughts go through your mind you're going okay now i'm i'm leaving the just uh stanley cup winner and i'm going to a team that's uh at that time probably middle of the pack at best and i said okay this is the you know just a lot of things go through your head but uh Hey, that's what you signed up for. It's kind of a little bit of a shock. Yeah, do I? Would I have wanted to play? Uh, you know, my whole career with the Montreal Canadiens. Sure, but that wasn't going to happen. And, uh, so you go to Pittsburgh. You call up the GM, Baz Bastien, at the time, and and they say, "Well, we're excited to have you. You know, we're looking for great things." So as bad as it felt going to Mon- uh, leaving Montreal. You know, they're welcoming in the, uh, the next organization in uh, Pittsburgh. So um, even though we, you know, we didn't have the greatest team uh, for the time I was there, you know, uh, I think the organization, they obviously wanted you and uh, made you feel as such. So.
1: And that always feels good. It was about a 500-team, as you point out, Pittsburgh Penguins at the time, coached by Eddie Johnston, another legendary guy and a fun guy to be around, to say the least, most of the time probably, <laughs> maybe not all the time. Um, I am talking to Pat Hughes here on Let Them Lead, the podcast about the risks and reward of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, and here we are launch into our second half of the segment, uh, talking to Pat. So a couple years in Pittsburgh, good years for you, uh, but then you get traded again this time to the Edmonton Oilers, and the timing there is pretty good. So tell us about that phone call and tell us about the team you're about to join in Edmonton.
2: Um, Yeah, that was, uh, it was funny. You you mentioned Eddie Johnson and I think I was in the, in the locker room early that morning, which was the trade deadline. And um, somebody asked Eddie um, what he thought about uh, trades that day. And he said, Oh, I don't think there'll be uh, many trades and and probably nothing's going to happen. That's, that's how we left it. We went out and went to practice and, after practice, left, went home, and then I got a phone call. It turned out that was the most active day in uh, NHL history. <laughs> uh, most active trading day in NHL history. So, uh, anyway, I go to, uh, they say you're going to Edmonton, and same thing. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, good luck. Call Glenn Sather. And uh, so uh, here's his number. And so you call Glenn Sather, and he says, uh, okay, we're practicing at uh, uh, the University of Alberta rink tomorrow, You got, you know, get a flight out of there tonight, we'll see a practice tomorrow, you know, stay at the Weston or wherever we were, we'll uh, see you then. So uh, they had somebody pick me up at the airport, bring me to the hotel. And, uh, you know, on the way, you're thinking, okay, I just went from a 12th place team to like, I think at that time, the Oilers were 17th or 18th in the standing.
1: Right, they're San building
2: up. We're, uh, we're going backwards here pretty quick. Um, until, you know, and so I, I, cause we're playing in the East. We didn't really get a chance to see the Oilers, uh, much in the West, although, or at least we'd play them, but not, uh, with any regularity. And, uh, so I get out there and I go to the university, of Alberta, you know, everybody greets you and says hello. And, you know, you go through that whole process and get on the ice and, uh, Right from the second I stepped on the ice and saw what pace we were, uh, the practice was at, and uh, the talent that was out there, I said, "Wow, this this team is going places."
1: You're right about that.
2: It took a couple uh, took a couple of seasons to get it squared away, but um, you know they uh, and to get you know a lot of those players the. Um, what I want to say, the experience under their belt. But as soon as it all came together, uh, you get an opportunity to see some of the greatest players ever um, and the greatest team ever to, uh, to play as well as they did. It was exciting.
1: Well, a certain guy named Wayne Gretzky, of course, and I don't care if you follow hockey or not, everyone knows that name, the way they know Babe Ruth or Michael Jordan, naturally. Um, he, of course, was on his way up at that point. In 1983, you guys lose a heartbreaking Stanley Cup to uh, the New York Islanders, and they're winning their fourth cup at that point. Great scene in Gretzky's book when he said, the old Nassau Coliseum, and I'm sure you're there, of course, in the same locker room, you got to walk past the Islanders locker room to get to the bus, which he did not want to do. He was dreading this because he thought, you know, I'm going to walk past these guys celebrating hooting and hollering, and that should have been us, and I'm going to be bitter about this. But he walked past the Islanders locker room, he does not see them hooting and hollering. Their friends are. Their friends are getting drunk or doing whatever. Uh, the guys who played the games, the Nystroms and the Gorings and the Trochiers and so on, they were very gingerly taking off elbow pads from arms that had been hacked and whacked for two solid months, if not longer. And that's when he said, that's when I realized why they won the Cup and we didn't. Uh, the level of sacrifice in the Stanley Cup playoffs is simply much higher than any other team sport. And if we're not going to get there, we're not going to do it. So I thought that was a very good insight. And you're on that team, of course, and you're playing big roles on the teams that follow two more cups you won. What was the change in attitude on the way up versus actually winning the cup? And also, while we're on it, Glenn Sather, known as Slats, of course, the nickname, uh, also one of the greatest coaches of all time. How was he similar to Scotty Bowman and how was he different? So I'm asking you two questions at once. Sorry about that.
2: <laughs> You're asking me way more than two questions at once. (laughs) uh, Let me me go back on this. You know, I think the first year I was there, we lost out to um, maybe it was the Islanders early. You'd have to check that, 81. Maybe it was Canadians. No, we beat the Canadians, I think, in uh, 82 and then lost out maybe to the Islanders right after that. Um, when, When they the following year we tore the league up and ran away with the scoring first place overall and went into LA and, you know, whatever they call that, uh, uh miracle on Manchester where they came back and we had a five, nothing lead going into the third period and we lost six, five in overtime. And then they came back up and beat us in Edmonton and game five back in those days. But, you know, that's all part of the learning process. We learned that, okay. Um, we can score goals, but we better learn how to keep them out of our net. And we needed to commit to a system that, uh, that everybody bought into that allowed us to both play great offense. And uh, I'm talking about the great offensive players, not me, but the, um, and, and put with great defense um, and being able to make that transition. So fast forward to following year. you say we, um, when we lost to the Islanders and, and Gretzky said it, and I've heard it a number of times, that we while well, I walked by that dressing room, we saw them, and they were they were beat up. And, it, you know, that's the fourth of four in a row for them. But they made the sacrifice. They had the team commitment to do whatever it took to, uh, um, to really get the job done. Now, now, we lost four straight that year. But we had improved our game significantly from the year prior when we lost to the um, to the Kings. So we would learned how to play defense. The one intangible that we hadn't quite grasped was what you said, the, the sacrifice and the commitment that you had to make. And I think everybody saw then what they had done. And when the next season started, we were committed to doing whatever it took. Um, we got back to against the Islanders in the finals, which would have been uh, was their run for five uh, five in a row, and uh, we were able to stop that from happening and beat them that first game in Long Island. I think one nothing, and then we we lost the next game, but then we beat them three straight back in Edmonton. So that was the end of their program, but we you know we had played them. So many times that I, you know, in intensity uh, games and um, we learned from them and we, we were able to add that into our way we played. So,
1: I like that. The first game, one nothing at the Nassau Coliseum, their home rink, force rate Cups. one nothing is not the kind of game you would have won two years earlier. Uh, that's a whole lot of team discipline. And I always say, I mean, scoring is talent, creativity. Defense is discipline. Defense is an attitude. Um, And unlike scoring, look, if Wayne Gretzky goes end-to-end, you all get credit for a goal, basically. Um, But for team defense, every guy on the ice, every shift, has got to know what he's doing and feel accountable to each other. Defense always impresses me more from a coaching point of view than offense does.
2: Yeah. You know, um, Scotty Bowman used to say uh, you know, he didn't care how many goals uh, we scored as a team, but his whole goal was always to limit the other team to two goals or less. And that was the number that he always harped on. Um, I don't know so much that we were really, in Edmonton anyway, focused on the two-goal uh, level. But uh, we learned how to play a better brand of defense that allowed when you had us to. to transition into our, our offensive game and um, um, you know, take it from there. Now, to your question about Glenn Tatherer. Totally different uh, approach than um, Scotty Bowman. Uh, you know, big players, coach, big personality. Um, would bits with uh, every guy in the room. Had a comment about everything. knew knew everything about everything, whether he did or not. Um, um, but you you just love playing for the guy, and uh, you know he had a, he had great influence on his uh, superstars there that played. But he also um, you know, it was totally inclusive with everybody. Everybody was part of the team. And, and he's uh, the guy that was, you know, another one that said it takes 20 to, to get the job done. And he's a big part of that. But the guys loved him. They loved playing for him. Um, you know, maybe as time went on, there were some personality issues that arose if somebody wasn't maybe getting the ice down. But, you know, Glenn was the coach. Then he was the coach and general manager, and then he was the president, uh, general manager, and coach. So you didn't have uh, – um, you could only go so far. He was the leader. Um, everybody appreciated it and followed his lead, and he's the he was the architect of it, and he's the reason they were as successful as they were.
1: A lot of ways to skin a cat, and as you said, Bowman's personality could not have been more different than Sather's, and yet a lot of commonalities there too. Uh, 20 guys, they all matter, and no doubt Sather had very high expectations, and he's probably not a guy you want to disappoint. Um, that would probably not have gone very well, and you might find yourself playing somewhere else. So some commonalities there as well. Wayne Gretzky, of course, the leader of that team in many ways. Mark Messier, though, the captain of that team for most of that time, um, although they both had served as captains at various times. Two legendary leaders there. What were they like as leaders in the locker room and elsewhere?
2: Um uh- well, they, they're both the, uh, you know, the, in my book, the greatest of all time. Wayne, um, you know, I, had a, I didn't get on the ice much with Wayne because I think he'd look at Sather and say, why is Hughes out here on the ice with me? Where's Curry? Um, so there'd be a quick change. But uh, I had front row seats to, to watching his magic for uh, close to five years. And um, the guy is amazing. He leads by example. He wasn't a big rah-rah guy, although whenever he did speak up, uh, you know, everybody was all ears. Um, you know, and you look at his uh, his records, I mean, they speak for himself. So he was one of the hardest working players in practice every day. Uh, he, uh, he was always uh, honing his skills, and if Wayne Gretzky's uh, pushing as hard, it makes everybody else push as hard. Now, Mark Messier, you know, a different type of leadership style. Um, he would uh, give you an earful, uh, you know, and 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 motivate you that way, but all in an encouraging way. Um, but he was another one, you know, led by example all the time. Um, he backed up whatever he said he was going to do, and um, every time he hit the ice in practice or in a game, you know, it was going to be 100%. He was uh he was great to play with another I had another front row seat to watch him uh most of my career and uh you know watching the two of them, not to mention, you know, a number of the other guys that played. I mean a Curry or a Coffee or Glenn Anderson or Grant Fuhrer. I mean, they had a pretty good nucleus of uh, great players on that squad. So
1: never hurts, of course, but I like the same approach. Um it certainly solves a lot of problems as a head coach when your two best players are also two of your hardest workers. Uh, no one else can really complain at that point. If you're on the third or fourth line, are you all working Gretzky? No, then okay, you're fine. I do recall one great story you told in the locker room years ago that I think they put you on Gretzky's line for a week or so, and you had a great you know, four or five games, whatever it was, uh, and yet not great enough to keep Yari Curry's spot away. Tell us that one.
2: Well, you know, it, it I don't recall being on the, on the line that long. I know before, um, before Yari uh, came to camp and, uh, you know, he was kind of a, a great find by the European scouting staff and Barry Fraser, who was our chief scout back then, just a, a natural uh, goal scorer. And, um, they rotated a bunch of different uh, right wingers through the lineup, trying to find the right person that, that had the chemistry uh, with Gretz, so we all we all got a little shot at it. I remember the, uh, Blair McDonald uh, used to play. I think he scored the famous story about Blair is uh, BJ McDonald. He was uh, scored forty with Gretz and went in to negotiate with Sather, and um, you know he said, "Hey, look, I deserve a raise. I scored forty this year." And Sather said, "You know, Fire Hydrant could score forty with Gretz." And <laughs> Um it wasn't until <laughs> you know, they found Yari, and uh, you know, the rest is history. Those guys were a dynamic uh, pairing and um, tore it up.
1: Well, you're very self-effacing about your own career as you have been today. Uh, far too much, in my opinion. You had a great career, in my view, uh, including one game in Calgary in which you scored five goals. You were the, only the 34th player out of thousands upon thousands of players to have ever done that. Even the great Ivan Cornway scored hundreds of goals, of course. Did not do that. That must have been one hell of a light night. And as Yvonne told me recently, John, let me tell you something. You can get lucky once. You can get lucky twice. Nobody in the world can get lucky five times.
2: Well, it was, uh, the game was against Calgary in Edmonton. Um, I don't even think uh, – well, I know Wayne wasn't playing that night. and I think Mark might have been out as well. So, I don't know, for whatever reason, I got a little bit more ice time. Um, it's. Yeah, I pulled the stats on it not long ago, but I – I had uh, 10 shots on net, which I, you never get, um, certainly as a third or fourth liner. And then I um, I hit two posts, too, which uh, don't count as shots on net either. So um, could have been in, you know, rarefied air with Red or Daryl Siddler I had one of those gone in. But, um, yeah, just everything worked that night. I think I had a power play goal, and I don't get on the power play very didn't in those days very much I had a short-handed goal um, and then uh, three even strength goals so uh, yeah it was, uh, it was a big night it was exciting and uh, it, was, it was a little bit of a surprise not only me but uh, just about every other person that ever watched hockey uh, it was a surprise to them that that I would uh, ever do that so. well any
1: funny reactions from Messier or uh, Gretzky or any of those guys afterwards?
2: Uh, no, not really. I, you know, Gretz came down. I think he had a sore back. One of the few games that he ever missed in his career. And um, you know, they were all happy and congratulatory. They, uh, but nothing. You know, they knew it was an anomaly. I think. Anyway. <laughs> well,
1: like I said, five goals. Pretty hard to get that lucky. So, pretty cool. Uh, you finish your career with Buffalo, then St. Louis, and then a couple games with Hartford. 573 games that's a hell of a mark right there 130 goals 128 assists showing good balance there 258 points uh, about a point every other game for a third or fourth line guy that's very impressive in my view uh you retired from hockey dan farrell your old college coach recalls you whenever you went to any foreign rink, of course, at Wisconsin, Minnesota, et cetera, you always ended up in a conversation with the police officers working the game. He, said, he thought you were always fascinated by law enforcement. And then I guess you proved it by, of course, joining the Ann Arbor Police Department, rising to detective, then, of course, detective sergeant, the supervisor of the detectives. What was your attraction to law enforcement, and how did you pursue it?
2: I think I watched too many uh, TV shows when I was a kid. Uh, too much Adam 12 I think or whatever those oh, dragnet net maybe um, I don't know I just uh, it was something uh, I'd, I'd met a number of different uh, um, people that were in law enforcement a good friend of mine um, in Edmonton was uh, is the father of Ray Whitney uh, the great great player who will soon be in the Hall of Fame I would suspect after a 23 year career but uh, Floyd his dad was a uh, was our third string goalie uh, for the Edmonton Oilers. So they had somebody to spell uh, mostly Andy Moog and Grant Fuhrer and went on to do that for years. But he was also a canine uh, officer and, uh, in Edmonton. And uh, we hit it off quite well. I knew a number of uh, guys that were deputies in the Ann Arbor area. I met the police chief in Ann Arbor years later. And uh, he kind of uh, opened the door and convinced me there were. Was- Good opportunity to come on board with them. So um, did that.
1: Uh, You did that for a reason, though. Of course, you're attracted to for a lot of reasons. I recall talking to you about this when you're on the force. Um, For example, when you're on your way up, uh, breaking up college parties at two o'clock in the morning, and you said them to me that stayed with me. Your first job is to find the one guy in the house with common sense. (laughs) with enough common sense to know how to talk to a police officer and not make the situation worse. You find that guy, and he speaks for the whole house, and then things start to calm down. Do you remember telling me this, or do you recall that philosophy?
2: I I remember breaking up a, uh, I think it was one of our U of M hockey parties um, after they had won the NCAA finals, and it was uh, uh, the goalie. um, Turco? Turco, that... uh, came out i think they were getting a noise complaint it was early in the morning and like really early in the morning and uh turco came out and spoke to me and he was he was great about it they all went to breakfast and that was the end of the uh any problems there but yeah it's uh, uh when you work in the street in ann arbor it being a college town you you run into all kinds of people and um you know Tends to be a uh, heavy influence of drinking that causes every one of those students to uh, be an expert in the law and everything else. And uh, so we uh, we took the opportunity to try and educate as many students as we could on uh, the real ways of the world. So it was interesting when you work the street and the, you know the, the different shifts provide different opportunities uh, for engagement with with uh, people and you know during the day it's pretty quiet and you're running into mom and dad and uh, in the evening there's a little bit of a different element that comes out and then at night when it you know after midnight it's a whole different animal so every day was a little different and it was uh, it was fun
1: uh, of course I've been knowing you all these years of course 25 years your calmness on the ice i know you played a high-energy game. You worked your tail off, of course. A lot of intensity, uh, but you never lost your head, that I saw. Um, you must have brought that to your work as a police officer, then detective, then sergeant, of course. Um, that must have helped you staying calm under pressure. Did your athletic background at a very high level? Did that help you on the police force?
2: Um, I, I got to think about how calm I was on the ice at times, and if I ever <laughs> lose, lose my head. Uh, I probably did lose my head. In fact, I. I Remember in St. Louis getting a, uh, a penalty and then a ten-minute misconduct and a game misconduct just for uh, being too mouthy. So I I don't know if that was uh, that was calmness under fire. But uh, what I did learn was whatever that whole approach was didn't really work. So it was a good lesson and trying to have a different approach. To things you know in uh, police work they do a lot of uh, you know training. It's all you know, pretty much a military uh, type of uh, training environment. and um, They're instilling this level of uh, calmness and confidence in, in you all the time because all the situations that you're going to face moving forward don't always uh, necessitate a uh, um, any type of crazy action. It's more of a common sense approach than a calm discussion to uh resolve most situations than any type of you know physical type of engagement so and you know, i think it's just something that you learn as a as an officer um through all the training that you receive and if you're uh somewhat inclined to, to have that type of personality to begin with it goes a long way
1: that does help and uh, you had a, you had a very high regard i've got plenty of police friends uh, here in Ann Arbor, including the police chief, Carl Ent. Um, you've got a lot of regard from those guys, by the way, as you do from Serge Savard and Yvonne Cornway, Wayne Gretzky, and Mark Messier. So I think both careers are quite impressive. I'm going to boil it all down to uh, three lessons, as I always do for these podcasts. One, from your parents, uh, honest effort counts a lot. And if you don't give it, you're going to hear about it. If you do give it, they're okay. And I like that. They were not worried about you becoming a travel team player or an NHL player, uh, just a good, honest, hard worker. And that. To me, it's the father of a seven-year-old kid is what I'm focused on now, too. The great coaches, whether it's Scotty Bowman, who's a bit aloof, and Glenn Sather, who's the opposite, uh, were similar in some ways. One similarity, of course, is great teams are inclusive, and that includes, of course, Yvonne Cornway and Serge Savard, Gretzky and Messier. They bring you in right away. That's a great commonality of the great teams. And I'm skipping down past a few other great points here, including every role is important, which is related. Uh, playoff hockey. No matter how much talent you have, you have to have the discipline and the team accountability to play defense. And that applies, I think, to almost all organizations. So I love all those points right there. Last question, Pat. Who was your favorite teacher?
2: Who's my favorite teacher? I can tell you where I got by the greatest advice uh, I ever got. There was my uh, French teacher in – or no, my math teacher in high school. And he, he said uh, – you know, you've uh, in this world, you either have to be really, really smart or really, really organized. And he said, at this point, you're not really organized, and I don't see you getting very, very smart. So he said, you better get organized. So uh, that was great advice. And uh, so Mr. Scovell, uh, back in Toronto, he was a he was a great guy and provided great, great advice.
1: I like that one. Mr. Scolo, was he easy? Sounds like he wasn't.
2: No, no he's a taskmaster.
1: Uh, I've asked that question, Pat, from Vancouver, down to Sao Paulo, Brazil, Santiago, Chile. I've asked it about 300 times, probably 400 times by now. And I found no commonalities amongst the grade, the subject, the race, gender, et cetera, all those things, except for two things. The guy cared about me, and he was not easy. Zero for 300, were easy. How about that? Of all time, favorite teachers. I love that quote. Again, it's self-deprecating humor. One of your specialties, uh, great friend to the program. How about that? And me as well. And as far as Chris Maneri, your old teammate, busting my chops for being a mediocre hockey player, I always tell him, if you're a better coach, I would have been a better player. So <laughs> that's a summer camp. Pat, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks to all our listeners, of course, for staying with us. And of course, you can always subscribe. Please do that. Leave a review and tell your friends those three things. About Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. And I'm John U. Bacon, the host of the podcast and the author of Let Them Lead Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team.
0: Stay tuned for more. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes and by all means, spread the word. Please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead.